Hello and welcome back to the Balls Deep podcast. This is episode six and today's guest is Desiree Fong, a postgraduate researcher in security, conflict and human rights. We talked about toxic masculinity, identity, racial abuse, wokeness and the strain of global issues on your mental health. I really hope you enjoy this last episode. Before we get started, I just wanted to say a massive thank you for all the support that you've given over this last, I guess, must be six weeks. Thank you so much. I love getting the messages. I love hearing from those of you who this podcast is helping. Um, And I love your suggestions. So please keep them coming. Keep the reviews coming. Keep sharing it. There's a couple of cheeky bonus episodes on the way. And then I'm going to take some time to reflect and see how I want to move forward. Thank you, and here we go, episode six. Yeah, one ear out, one ear, one ear in, so I'm gonna look weird, but that's okay. Like a DJ. Like a, well, DJ Des, you know, what can I say? <laughs> <laughs> Shall we pretend that we haven't spoken and had any Oh yeah, before? like how are you? Let's catch up. Yo, Jake, well, wow, well. it's been a while, hasn't it's it? It's nice to see you. I mean, I was very nervous, so I had to, you know, impress you with my makeup and my joggers. You see that? <laughs> Is that a Bambi toy on your bed? I'm actually not in my room. Yes. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> Whose stuffed toy is that? It's, uh, it's, it's my housemates. Oh, nice. You're doing a lot of work at the minute? Yeah, I mean, I'm doing a lot of um, work at the moment. I, I don't know, do you know what I'm doing at the moment, Jake? No, I actually... You have uh, no I mean, idea. I know wow. you're doing post... Uh, you told me this. Postgrad research in wow. security, conflict and human rights. Okay, that's yeah? impressive. Yes, that's impressive. I'm Yeah, I'm impressed you remember. Um, let's let's make a start, yeah. Yeah, sure, let's do it. Have you you feel comfortable? Yeah. Sick. All right. Um. Right, Smong. Can you? Uh, first of all, apologies for calling me that throughout this conversation. Do not apologize. Um, but can you secondly <laughs> introduce yourself and your alter ego of Smong Along? Oh, my story of Smong Along. Well, tell me who you are first, and then yeah. Okay, right. Okay, well, my name's Desiree, um, Desiree Fong. Um, I am currently a postgraduate researcher um, in security, conflict, and human rights at University of Bristol. How's that? How's that for a title? Whoa. that's a bit of a title. <laughs> bit of a title. Um, and, okay, so Smong Long is my Instagram handle. So my name's Desiree. So D E S I R E and people like when I was little, they because no one like no one's ever heard of that name before. So they're like, what the hell's Desiree? So they just yeah. kind of like reduced like, you know, they just kind of turned into Desmond, which isn't the same name. Um so they started calling me Desmond. Did you like that or did it feel like you're being teased? Do you know what? I felt I felt cool, you know? I felt like, you know, I, I like this masculine identity that they've come some somewhat created. You know, Ooh. so yes. Ooh. <laughs> Here we go with that. Okay, and then that was shortened. That was shortened to Smond and then Smond. Yes. Okay, but that's yeah. just just a little insight because I'm sure I will make a few slip ups. I'm not used to calling you Desiree at all. Like, I don't think I've ever. I don't ever think you have. But I feel really, you know, I feel like we've created this beautiful friendship now that you've called me Smong. 
you know? Yeah, I think so. I I remember I remember being very proud of that. Like at uni, we obviously for some background, we had seminars in French together. We did. And I do I do remember distinctly calling you Smogalong and people looking like, What the fuck is he talking about? Like who is he talking to? <laughs> and you're like, Oh, oh my god, thanks, that's my handle. Yeah, big time. <laughs> right, okay. So tell me about what you're studying tell me about what's going on so at the moment i am doing research in first of all i'm from hong kong um and i decided to focus on my research project in the national security law that was recently implemented in hong kong um so it's very much about what's happening right now in terms of um China and the relationship between China and the West and what that means after they impose this law in Hong Kong because Hong Kong's basically a platform between the East and the West so this is how basically they create this you know financial relationship um, trading relationship all sorts so because Hong Kong has always been um, semi-democratic and semi-autonomous and now this law means that you can't really speak against the CCP government, CCP being the Chinese Communist Party. Um, so recently, um, a lot of prominent pro-democracy politicians, activists, campaigners, really prominent figures have recently been arrested under this national security law. Um, so what does that mean um, in terms of do we have we lost our freedom of speech, even though we are supposedly still have it under this one country two system um law because obviously we were we yeah. were we were part of the british colony right what we were part of the you know we were colonized by the brits and stuff um and then after the handover in 1997 um the brits gave hong kong back um so we basically technically we are under the beijing government but we do have some sort of democracy so we follow british law but part of china if that makes sense does that make sense? Okay, yeah. Yeah, very complex. Uh, this is something I wanted to ask you about, right? So, Go on. We'll, we'll f- okay, so in the context of mental health, right, mm-hmm. what impact does it have on you to have such an insight onto these complex and seemingly like insurmountable issues? Um, and how do you sort of balance that between just getting through your daily life and you know thinking about locally where you fit in um and then looking at these huge huge issues that i mean it's kind of overwhelming is that no i i think that's a very good question actually um so first of all part of this research program we have to learn about understanding your position as a researcher because a lot of research that you tend to do um it's going to be somewhat related to you because you're obviously naturally interested in that topic so you have to be aware you know we have a lot of you know ethical codes to to be aware of like making sure that you understand you need to look after your mental health um when you have to delve into very like you know emotionally taxing issues like hong kong for example so you have to basically make sure that you know you you're not there to solve the issue you're literally there so that you can shed light on the matter you're not there you know because it's it's really hard for me at the moment to separate myself as trying to solve this massive political issue as one 
you know just Desiree in Bristol and you know at the same time yeah, trying yeah. to like yeah it, it, it's really hard because obviously this is part of my identity as well you know um so it's really yeah. it's it, you you have to be aware but being aware is one thing but actually trying to separate your feelings and the topic that you're researching on is another thing. Um, really, really difficult. You have to constantly, you know, tell yourself that it's okay. It's, you know, you, you're not going to okay. be the only one solving it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that, that, that is mad. I don't think I personally could handle that, but thankfully that's why I'm not doing something like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, Right, so Smong, you you mentioned like this is this is your identity, and I just wondered if you could give a little bit of background, um, like well into your identity and like, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, give us the backstory. Absolutely, absolutely. So people might think, oh, you know, she's from Hong Kong, but she sounds really posh. Um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was thinking that. <laughs> well, um, so when I was eight years old, I remember in twenty two thousand six. Um, my parents decided to ship me quite literally <laughs> from Hong Kong to the UK all by myself. Um, so I've been, it, it, yeah, that's something I actually would love to share, you know, my thoughts on this um, in terms of childhood traumatic experiences and stuff. Um, so obviously I yeah, was only eight years that. old. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really great to share experiences like that. Um, um, so, yeah, so, I arrived in England when I was eight years old, thinking that it's going to be like Harry Potter, because that was the only thing I could, you know, relate British culture with. Um, and then I just remembered, I didn't really know what was happening. I just knew it was happening. I was just like following instructions. Like my parents were like, right, so you're going to go to this school in England uh, for, for basically, you're going to stay there for the rest of your life kind of thing. Like no, like warning nothing it was just literally one day they were like okay we want you to have a better education so we need you to leave hong kong kind of thing um back then didn't really speak much english um didn't know what was going on i just remember arriving at the boarding school um in the middle of nowhere in in wiltshire and um and then i was just i started crying i i i i, I mean as an yeah. adult now you know in hindsight, looking back, it was me trying to process what was happening. First of all, you know, you have this cultural barrier, you know, you from from the you know very Eastern Asian culture, and then now you're in this world that you have never experienced before. Um, I think yeah. I was just processing. Can I ask the something? Trauma. Yeah, of course. So, I mean what's crazy to remember is that you were eight years old and so I just wondered like have you had you traveled at all before then like even with your family once we went to we went to South Korea once um but that was it for like a short family holiday but no I've never traveled before not especially like a 13 hour flight journey um to the other side of the world <laughs> that's really um, that's really crazy yeah it really is um I was going to ask if you could just describe some of your feelings, like not necessarily the moment you rocked up, but I just wonder if we could reflect on, I don't know, any, I feel like I'm putting words in your mouth. I can imagine the sort of feelings of maybe isolation, loneliness or solitude. I mean, this is incomparable, but let me just say, 
obviously you and I both did a year abroad, right? I remember a very awful feeling. I had to go to study in Paris. I was studying maths, right? My French is fine, but I don't understand maths in French. It really fucks me up. And that was the first time I'd felt totally alien. Like I couldn't explain myself. I couldn't understand any of the concepts that were being discussed. Even though there were things I'd been taught about before, being in a separate context of hearing it in a different language and being surrounded by these people from a different culture, you know, slightly different culture, I can only imagine like how much, you know, the different scale that you'd be feeling those feelings on. I mean, could you talk about that? Is that something you can relate to? Absolutely. I mean, of course, of course, it's incomparable, but you know, the feelings are very much the same. You feel like an outcast, you feel like an outsider, um, especially when you're a kid as well, um, in a very predominantly white environment. Um, I went to a very posh prep school as well. So I was the only non-white person in that environment. Um, So I just remember, because I couldn't speak English, um, they just kind of like, um separated me from the rest of the rest of the class so I would have like you know kids in my class you know looking at me like why is she being pulled away from this class or like you know why you know because I I needed that extra English assistant um because I couldn't I genuinely like you know like you said you couldn't process maths and French it's like I couldn't process any subjects in English um so you know because of that you know, I, I can only imagine that, you know, they sort of viewing me as the other, you know, the othering process, um, as the outcast, you know, she's foreign, you know, how am I gonna, you know, yeah, I'm, I have no interest in you because, you know, <laughs> you don't speak English and you look different. I'm not going to be friends You're with so you. So different. Yeah. So, you know, not only was there a language barrier, but the structure I was in, you know, they just, I, I wasn't with you know, I wasn't fitting in essentially um, because of the system of me not being able yeah. to speak English and stuff. Um, so I really struggled um, being, you know, making friends with people um, at that age. Really, really did. Um, in fact, what was I even going to say? Um, I was going to ask about how that developed then for you. So like how, how soon were you learning English? How soon were you becoming more confident? Because... What's shocking is that I know you as you know a confident, reasonably outgoing person. You'd be happy to strike up a conversation and obviously feel comfortable in your in your own skin. And I just I'd wonder how quickly that development took place, or if that's still something that you struggle with now. <laughs> oh wow, that's a very good question. Um, very good question. I forced myself to be white. I think that's a short answer to your question because I wasn't fitting in because I realized that I wasn't normal. Um, So, you know, obviously as a child, you're going to learn English a lot quicker than let's say, you know, learning a new language now. So I quickly absorbed, you know, English and I started to, you know, to get used to, you know, learning things in English and having to force myself to speak English. And we were actually punished if we speak our own language. Um, so we weren't allowed to speak English. Uh, sorry, we weren't allowed to speak our own native language at all. Um, so yeah, so That's unbelievable. You know, yeah, I know. Just thinking about it now, how problematic that is. <laughs> yeah, really awful. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no. As time went by, I just became. You know, I started to 
learn the culture, learn the pop, you know, I remember Girls Aloud, I, I was like, what the hell's Girls Aloud? And then, you know, I had to, you know, force myself <laughs> to enjoy Girls Aloud, a high school musical, all sorts of things. Um, so yeah, I, I, I had to create this new identity. Obviously, when you speak a new language, you create an identity, but I felt like I had this immense pressure of, you know, from being an outsider, I had to work my way up to gain that respect from people, from the dominant group, if that makes sense. Um, and that's definitely something I'm still working on um, because, you know, having grown up in such a very white environment, very white background, I still, there's a lot of, so this is going really deep, by the way. Um, so, you know, trigger warning kind of thing. Closing the name. Um, um <laughs> you know there's a lot of um s- there's a lot of self-hate um that's so deeply entrenched okay. because of my upbringing um um because i always i've you know learned to think even when i was in hong kong because you know in hong kong there's such a huge thing about white privilege and being white is the best thing you you know we we aspire to be that white identity have to have that white identity um so because i've yeah i'm i i was brought up with that idea i was never and still i'm not happy with myself and my own self-image um like i still sometimes feel like an outsider um and I really I remember you know when I was a teenager I really really did suppress my Chinese identity in me and I would be very embarrassed if my parents were to call me when when I'm with my friends because I don't want to speak Cantonese because you know like oh it's like an Asian language like it sounds horrible it doesn't sound romanticized like French or Spanish or whatever so why would I want to speak a very ugly language so I completely suppressed that identity um in me and presumably when you yeah presumably when you're a teenager that's those instances you know getting a phone call from your parents is then taking you right back to the start again and remembering those feelings from when you felt so ostracized for you know yeah. or you know actually punished for speaking your own language i mean yeah. that, that can't be something that you get over quite um quickly yeah fucking hell i mean even now i still refuse to speak in cantonese with people that I'm not very close with like I only feel okay. comfortable talking in Cantonese with certain friends only certain friends and that's really problematic because I'm a hundred percent from Hong Kong you know that is my mother tongue Cantonese is my mother tongue you know why am yeah. I so embarrassed of my identity and that's something that I've, I'm beginning to unpack um as I you know get older okay and that's what I wanted to ask is so you it sounds like you're very aware of it and it sounds like you know you're very conscious of how that has affected you and how it continues to impact you um is there any part of you that that is now able to go back and and embrace some of that culture absolutely um very good question um so you know how like i said uh my research this year is completely based in hong kong um so it was actually um when I got to Bristol, when I did my first master's degree in gender and international relations, I began to um, understand, you know, I was learning about, you know, society as a whole. And um, we we learned a lot about sociology and how understanding our identity and diversity, all that kind of stuff. Right. So I started to understand, actually, 
why have I been suppressing my own identity for so long? Like we have been the marginalized group, you know, the, you know, we've always been, we have always have to adopt this Eurocentric attitude in, in everything. Then, and then I also was very proactive during the Hong Kong pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong in, uh, I think June, 2019. And I thank you for that as well. I think if it wasn't for you, I, I probably would still have no idea what was going on in Hong Kong. Like, genuinely. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, that's, I that's mean, mad. first of all, that is absolute disgrace that, you know, the West, you know, the Western media yeah. don't really show much about what's going on in Hong Kong, especially because we were part of the British colonies, you know, like it's we were part of Brits that like, we fought for you in, in, in the wars, you know, <laughs> it, it's, it's a disgrace. Um, Embarrassing. Personally. Um, but. Yeah, no, then I started to embrace my own identity because um, because of what's going on in Hong Kong. And during the protests, actually, I remember, I just, it reminded me how proud I am, like, that I am from Hong Kong because we're fighting for our own identity because, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but Hong Kong, China, we speak completely different languages. We have different currency. We have a different government. We have, you know, we are, we're like a hybrid of the East and the West, whereas China is completely like authentic Chinese, you know, traditional Chinese culture, which I also very much appreciate. But Hong Kong is yeah. very, very different. We have our own identity. So, you know, I, it was through these protests that I went to that I realized, actually, I'm not as white as I as I thought I was, or I've been trying my, you know, for majority of my life to, to be. Um, so that was really the first step of trying to embrace my own culture again, really. That's amazing. So that sounds like something that's ongoing. I think a lot of people will relate to that. And like I said earlier, not to the same extent, obviously that's quite an extreme example, isn't it? I don't think, um, wow. In fact, yeah, I don't imagine any of my white mates from Winchester would be able to relate to being shipped off like that. But in terms of actually what you talked about, identity and, and suppressing who you are in order to fit in and feel more comfortable and more accepted, I think a lot of people feel like that. I, I certainly can think of examples that correlate in my life to the story that you've just laid out. So I appreciate you sharing that, Smog. That's really, really well, very vulnerable. No, that's absolutely fine. Um, I want to ask you, what you're studying now is very complex, very intellectual. What was your favourite thing to learn about when you were a kid? When I was a kid? Oh my goodness. Um, do you know what? It sounds, such an, it sounds like a very simple question, but it's actually a really hard question. Shall I tell you mine? Yeah, go on. T- yeah, tell me what um, tell me yours. I think I was obsessed with like I'm talking like quite young. I was obsessed with space. Like I wanted to be um wanted to be an astronaut. And I remember I had a little encyclopedia. I guess it's because it was really near the front, a astronaut, and I just went straight to that and thought, "Whoa, that's mad." And was just obsessed with space after that. So I used to you know read read about that or that or dinosaurs, (laughs) archaeology. Used to be into a bit of that. Wow, I mean. Yeah, I'm very not 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 like that. I was I've always been an extrovert. Um, you know me. I'm I'm very outgoing. Um, so I've always wanted to be a a singer, a, a an actor, a dancer, 
Um, so I've very much into music, very, very much into music. Um, even when I was at school doing my A-levels, I was very much involved with doing a lot of musical theatre stuff, um, piano and stuff, very much about music when I was a kid. And I thought I was like a superstar. <laughs> oh, that's sweet. I'm sure, you know I'm sure you're on your way. <laughs> I thought, right, you know, the beginning of High School Musical, yeah? I genuinely thought that I was Gabriella. Like, <laughs> it's so <laughs> embarrassing. But because doesn't, she was the, Doesn't everybody, do you, though? Isn't that the point? Oh, I don't know. I just kind of, like, I associate her to me because she was the only non... Well, actually, that's not true. She was, like, the one that resembled me the most. Does that make sense? So I was like, oh, my God, yeah, she's nice. so pretty. Yeah. She sings amazing. Like, I'm basically, like, Gabriella. <laughs> So yeah, that's great. So you've you've maintained a, a level of confidence throughout your childhood. Um, Smart. Tell me about masculinity. What are you gonna? Oh are you gonna teach God. me something about it today? Was I? Oh, it's 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 a very very complex. It's really hard to define masculinities because it's not a single entity to um, deconstruct. So let me let's not talk about masculinity. Let's talk about the term heteronormativity um yes right so that kind of goes in with masculinity and how we behave in the society right so we are currently we and we have been historically up to now and we're you know only starting to become a little bit more progressive in 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 society we have been living in this gender binary of masculine and being masculine being feminine now that is a very toxic um ways of living because when you're a child once the child is born you know our parents would naturally um associate certain traits to be masculine certain traits to be feminine like you know as a girl I would have to have my hair you know grown out with long hair I have to wear a dress and men they have to you know boys they have to have their hair short or play with you know action men or or look like a space or whatever something that's considered very non-feminine thing to do right so in early years we've really developed these specific traits associated to male and female and then as we get older we start um we start having these personality characteristics where for example men they don't talk about how they're feeling they don't they don't they they are stereotypically known as not having um very high emotional intelligence for example whereas women we're supposed to be very emotional very much you know more expressive than men and that's very very toxic in itself because that means you know that's the whole point of your podcast right you know getting encouraging men to talk about their feelings and you know it's really important to you know check in with yourself and you know be emotionally engaged with yourself and knowing how you're feeling is very important. But men weren't taught like that. And that's very much reflected in international politics as well, which is exactly what I did last year um, in my um, Masters of Science in Gender and International Relations. Okay. Can you tell me how that looks then? So we have this whole, you know, let's let's talk about the military, for example. I feel like I'm going to... I, I don't know I feel like this is very sensitive because obviously it is a phenomenon it's like a very new phenomena um within international relations so you know masculinity is very much portrayed within 
uh, the military, you have to act a certain way. You have to have a certain power, right? There's a power dynamics within this institution. And if you don't fit into that masculine trait, then you're marginalized. And then you, you, you won't feel like you're part of this norm. And then you, you're naturally harmed by this, um, by the fact that you feel like an outcast. I don't know if this makes sense, but you have to, there's a pressure for men in, in the military to act a certain way. So to be powerful, you know, don't fuck with me, that kind of attitude. So do you think in a less extreme way, this that all exists within society? So something that I thought of when, um, when you talked about kids and gender, um, but it reminded me of when I was a kid um, going to kindergarten, right? I don't know why it was called that. It's a bit of an American term, isn't it? Um, yellow dot kindergarten. Um, and one day, I, I just said to my mum, I was like, I want to wear a dress into school today, into kindergarten today. Um, put on this cute little frock, rocked up to kindergarten. Thankfully, my mum knew what was what. She kept a change of clothes in the car because I walked in the doors straight away. Mum, I don't want to do this anymore. Oh, no. Whipped it right off. And, right, I don't wear dresses. Maybe I would. But what I was thinking about that is, um, it's a cute, funny story. A few of my friends know that anyway. It's, it's kind of a bit silly. But um, is it that is that a, an analogy for sort of societal pressure? Like feeling absolutely. feeling absolutely fine doing that at home, around people you're comfortable with, no judgment walk into a room full of well 50% boys wearing shorts and a t-shirt you don't want to wear that pretty red dress anymore do you Jake well no because you're a boy right therefore you have to conform to certain traits of masculinity that has been imposed by society madness that is absolute madness absolute madness um which does a lot of harm to marginalized groups like LGBTQI community for example um which is you know very it's a issue that you know it should be addressed more often and how that you know affects their mental health by feeling marginalized in society because of how heteronormative our society is at the moment it's not very inclusive um small yeah is that right for all of this because i think people feel sometimes feel a little bit bombarded by um obviously there's, there's loads of buzzwords involved in conversations like this mm-hmm. but can you boil it down to sort of day-to-day repercussions? So, like, what are your experiences of, of max- masculinity or what you deem to be toxic masculinity? And, well, crack on with that. But any, I'd like right. to know any advice to gents, any advice to guys on how to combat this and how to involve that in terms of um, improving their mental health. That's a very good question. Um First, I snuck about three in there, so it's not very fair. No, you know, first of all, it's okay to say the word toxic masculinity. It's not just like a label. It's not just a label that's, you know, coined by the extreme left, you know, super woke people. It's, it's not a thing. Recognise what is toxic masculinity. And, you know, I feel like denial is such a big problem within men, Um at the moment it really is um and i think by recognizing what it is you start and then you start noticing it with within yourself i think that's the first step to recognizing how that could be bad 
for your mental health. So for example, I have been in and out of relationships and I always love talking about emotional, you know, I, I love to get deep with, you know, people's emotions and stuff. And I often find that the men that I have interacted with would deny their past traumas. Um, first of all, trauma in itself, you know, people don't really recognize it. We just see it as like, oh, a physical trauma. Therefore, that's what trauma is. It's not. There's a lot of emotional trauma that's happened throughout your life and we don't tend to deal with it. And the men that I have been associated with, they do not accept that that was a pain and they would they will suppress it. And then in return, I get the harm. I get the gaslighting. I get the yeah. emotional manipulative traits because they are hurt, right? So this is what I mean by um, acknowledging that it's okay. Let's normalize this term. Let's normalize toxic masculinity. It happens in every, within everyone. You know, it's not your fault. It is the byproduct yeah. of society and the way that, you know, there's only you know, this gender binary that we have always been, you know, have to also always follow. Um, so, you know, let's normalise that. I just wanted to sort of translate that. So I reckon you're saying your advice to men would be to focus internally on your own traumas, your own difficulties, things that you are struggling with. Um, Absolutely, yeah. And the implications of not doing that could be to harm those around you a hundred percent sorry yes that's a very yeah long story short i'm so i'm very sorry i do waffle a lot um no don't don't apologize um, but yes that that is that is pretty much my my advice and normalize the term because it's okay it's okay toxic masculinity yeah Uh, normalize that yes okay so okay yeah because there's some people that think it doesn't exist i mean i um Oh shit! We shouldn't get into this. I just um, some I think I struggle with with um some of these progressive ideas, and I know it's so polarizing. I think that's what I struggle with is that it's polarizing, and it frustrates me that um you either you've got to either be in or out. For example, somebody who I take some solace in reading their work is Jordan Peterson, right? And I know that that some people you can't say that to some people will find that outrageous because um he has been termed sort of misogynist transphobe etc etc um and i think that's the sort of thing that can turn a lot of people off to to see a lot of these issues as black or white so you're either on the side of side of right or the side of wrong what do you think about, about that i personally think i agree that we have created this very polarized you know you can even see it in black lives matter movement right you know we've created this completely polarized society where one group you you feel like you have to associate yourself with a certain group with a certain opinion but for me i just think that there aren't enough um education out there resources out there and guidance out there to actually understand how the world works or the history of it. You know, we've been, you know, for me, especially for me, I didn't know any of these things until I did a master's degree in, you know, in international relations. Yeah. You're like, I was not that quote woke 
quote, <laughs> before this, you know, I, I had to do a master's degree in it in order to actually recognize that actually on a deeper level in society, we have these entrenched issues. You know, I was not aware when I was doing my undergraduate degree. I think, to be honest, maybe that's, um, maybe that's optimistic, actually, because a lot of the time you look at, you look to the universities to see that, you know, what you're doing at the minute, you're doing postgraduate research, that is you're on the forefront, you're, you are starting these conversations and your research like that then becomes mainstream and then sort of filters it down to the, its way down to the rest of society. So although at the minute it feels like that's frustrating and that this knowledge is, is kept away and it's, um, it's, it's not common knowledge, it's not, it's not, um, fucking hell, this is an example of me fucking up my words. Um, <laughs> But that you know that maybe we're five years away from stuff that you're discovering being common parlance or in the education system. Absolutely. I I can agree because this time last year, I remember I was doing Jen and IR really opened up my eyes into, you know, how society functions and stuff. I started posting a lot of things on my social media about these things. And that was right before the Black Lives Matter movement. And I remember I've got into so many DM fights with random people who follow me and then stop following me because they disagreed with things I say. And then funny, funny enough, um, after the Black Lives Matter movement, like around summertime, one of them actually came back to me and apologized for his like ignorant behavior, like back back before BLM. Can you um can you give some detail about the ignorant behavior? Um so I've always um so since my master's last year, I'm very conscious about colonialism, how we're living in this new colonial era. Uh we've never really dealt with colonialism we just kind of like ignored it and moved on as a society so I always talk about whiteness and we need to reckon you know not me because I'm not white but like one needs to recognize their whiteness and how you know when you're white you are in a certain level privileged in society right so I always said a lot about that and then when Black Lives Matter came came along you know we were talking about you know the Colson statue being pulled off and you know these slave you know slave traders you know we need to get rid of them and stuff and then that's when he realized it's like actually we have never been taught in history that you know Winston Churchill was a bad very racist leader like we were never taught that we were always taught about this you know how patriotic we should be because we won the second world war we never realized how you know um people the you know former colonies or current colonies they also fought in the war as well we never recognize that in in you know textbook history yeah, that's right i am very optimistic like you said about how we are advancing in society i think there's more you know we're becoming more aware um with more resources people are campaigning people are you know us you know educating on social media or in schools or you know um which, you know, I'm, I'm working this with this um, decolonizing the higher education curriculum at Bristol Uni at the moment. We're trying to decolonize all the um, readings we have to do at university to diversify all the authors. You know, we're, we are making that big step. That's amazing. Towards, you know, diversity, understanding history from a new perspective. That's great. And I think what I think is really important, and I think this I'm going to try and unify what we've both just said is... Um, 
is that when you say that, when you say, you know, looking at history from a different perspective and updating the textbooks and acknowledging that, you know, some of the leaders of the past may not have been all they're cracked up to be. I think when people, when I said that um, it can easily turn people off and you end up with this sort of like dichotomy, this sort of black and white, um, mm -hmm. it's got to be one thing or the other. I think that scares people. People think, no, 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 no. You know, I was taught Winston Churchill was a hero. He's my hero, you know, all yeah. the rest. It doesn't mean to say that you are scrapping that. I think, hopefully you'd agree. You could say that we are looking at history from a broader perspective and seeing that exactly. actually, you know what, maybe this bloke did some good stuff in from this perspective, but how did it impact those people? Or what, what are the implications of that through our society? And look, why is it that you think that he's such a hero when he's still done all these atrocious things? And there's so much more to unpack than it just being this straight narrative um, that we've already been spoon fed, I suppose. A hundred percent. And do you know what? I actually have a little anecdote for you. Um, so back in June time, um, there was a counter rally, All Lives Matter rally happened in Bristol um, that I obviously didn't partake in. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, Are you organised? So, <laughs> yeah, I was the organiser of this. <laughs> um, <laughs> so basically we a few a friend of a few friends of mine you know we we just kind of like we, we just actually bumped into this counter rally and i was immediately um fetishized fetishized and exoticized by these men um they were you know first of all we were women like they completely you know they whistled at us they catcalled us and then um one of my friends because um you know she was quite brave she just kind of approached them with a camera and just said you know wanted to know what their opinions on you know this whole movement and stuff and and then he just kind of like started um you know insulting us and and then he pointed at me because I'm not white saying you know like you know oh, I can't exactly remember what he said he was just, he was just like you know you know you're not even white here get out of this country kind of like racial sorry like trigger warning you know like racial abuse that kind of thing um yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah really really tough situation um i cried um i remember crying um during that um so you just happened to be walking past we just happened to be walking past um yeah and is that something you experience a lot i've only been to two types of protests one for pro democracy hong kong and the black lives matter protest um so yeah not really uh yeah so there was a counter rally against all lives matter movement in 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 the city center in bristol of like you know young people like us um saying like um you know races ahead be aware kind of thing there are loads of police everywhere right um and then one guy from the all lives matter movement came up to this boy who's you know black lives matter uh kicked him like like literally quite literally kicked him and the police was literally two meters from that scene and didn't do anything until sorry that i would let me just say that guy who was attacked was a black man and then until a white woman approached the police saying did you not see what just happened did you not see this man physically attacked this man and you didn't do anything about it and then that's when they started to chase the the the, the guy who kicked him if that makes sense so there's a lot of layers of, you know, issues in that, in that just one, that one day. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. yeah and in, in that instance, it, I mean, I wonder about what I, 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 I support your friend who went up to those protesters to try and find out what, what do you want? Are you okay? Do you need someone to hug you? Um, and I, I just wonder, there, there must be some, you know, whatever the viewpoint, maybe they've got a totally valid viewpoint, who knows, but it doesn't seem right to just want to kick someone because they're marching for a certain thing. I, I, I can't understand the leap from I have this political viewpoint to I'm going to kick that man. It seems quite extreme. Yeah, yeah. It was it was very scary for me, even more so than when I was at the um, protest in Hong Kong, for sure. Really? Um, worse than, worse than yeah. being, being in Hong Kong? Yeah, because I obviously witnessed someone attacking someone physically because of their political opinion um and obviously as someone who is a female and non-white it it obviously does affect me um because I felt I felt I was very unsafe in that in that situation first of all I was you know there was racial and misogynistic abuse towards me and then I witnessed someone who's non-white being abused physically so I was they were yeah. very wary, um, you know, of my position in in that event. Yeah, I can't imagine. Like literally, um, it's. I mean that that is what that is what's fucking mad, and it's like what you said earlier. The people who are white or living, you know, from this country, um, need to acknowledge how fucking privileged they are. Like I. I can't imagine feeling like that. Like the closest, you know, to your anecdote earlier, the closest I could feel was just being in a room with loads of white French people, and I couldn't quite understand what they were saying. Like that's that's the most I felt <laughs> outcast. Do you know what I mean? That's um that's unbelievable. It really is unbelievable. Absolutely. Um, I don't. We've touched on a few of these things, but if I asked you this question, I'd just be interested to hear what your answer would be. Um. Right, Desiree, so what's your experience of mental health, specifically? So I've actually recently got into therapy um, because I've started noticing a lot of... um, I've started acting very differently during this pandemic than I did before. And, you know, when you're in a pandemic, you're not really doing anything, so all your thoughts kind of exacerbate. So one thing I'm trying to unpack with my therapist is my trauma from... As I, when I was a child um, and that's something that I'm I'm I would like to start a project on you know raising awareness of your trauma not just a childhood trauma but you know understanding your childhood and how that has affected your adulthood um, so that's something that I'm dealing with at the moment um, you know my parents neglecting me for, at such a young age you know I'm constantly seeking that intimacy that love that I never got from my parents um and then obviously having to deal with identity issues you know trying to feel happy and confident in my own identity in my own skin um it's also a very hard thing for me to overcome at the moment um so i say these two are my two main things i'm struggling with working on as well um okay thanks so much for sharing that um yeah what you said throughout this has made me think shit yeah I know I've got trauma I need to start seeing a fucking therapist and I totally agree with you I think we need to encourage others to do that I mean I think what's 
maybe another conversation needs to be had is is access to things like this access to services because um yeah. i don't know what your situation is but i know it's not a, you know it's not an inexpensive thing to do is to seek therapy it's really not it's no. a, it's definitely very i'm very privileged to be able to afford therapy and it's not cheap at all so not everyone can have the same opportunity to you know improve themselves you know yeah that's mad and um you could imagine that if you're privileged enough to um to afford something like that then perhaps you are also privileged enough to not have experienced such a detrimental trauma yeah no a hundred percent um i just thought i want to use your platform as well to really you know get your listeners to understand about ptsd trauma you know from what i have you know understood what ptsd and trauma means is that you know ptsd for example someone you know soldiers coming back from a very you know horrific war and they're trying to deal with all the heavy stuff that they they've experienced right that's all i've known what ptsd means and and trauma but it really it really isn't actually it's not um it's not really that it's actually you know if we really reflect on our experience childhood experience i'm i'm very much like that's my new project i would like to work on and talk to people about their childhood experiences because it's very very important that we kind of start reflecting you know as an adult about you know our relationship with our parents our experience our childhood like how has that impacted negatively positively in our adulthood yeah and i thought i'd just throw in some research that i've you know i've done please do recently so apparently with childhood trauma one in eight children actually suffer um enough trauma to have a long-lasting negative impact in terms of their mental and physical health well into their adulthood to listeners out there you know really reflect and if you if you can relate that's absolutely great that is already the beginning of this journey of you trying to unpack your experience and your and your own story everyone has their own unique story everyone has their own unique trauma don't let textbook definition don't let anyone you know dismiss what you've gone through um and then there's something else i really want to talk about really quickly um, because i know we've been babbling on for babbling on for quite a while um (laughs) just got my notes here don't worry Um, i've i've actually still got i've got five questions still to ask you so oh my goodness see we can just go on for hours can't we i yes i i can absolutely love talking to you um so basically i was talking to my old flatmate she is a um special needs teacher at primary school and she was telling me for her safeguarding training as a teacher for special kid uh, special needs kids is um there's this thing that they need to be aware of it's called aces so it stands for adverse childhood experiences so what that means i went on google did some research and it was basically a study done in america where they ask 17.5 thousand adults about their history and their exposure to um to um adverse childhood experiences so what that means what aces means is that um you'd have trauma like physical uh, emotional or sexual abuse or physical, emotional neglect, parental mental illnesses that have influenced you, um, parents who were substance dependent, um, or parents who went to jail, or parental separation or divorce, 
um, or domestic violence or, you know, a child witnessing parents fighting or anything that would, you know, directly slash indirectly affect a child's mental health. And obviously as a child, yeah, they won't know, they can't see that you're traumatized because they don't know whether that's a, a normal thing or not a normal thing. So we would never recognize it. No. And we, you know, and childhood trauma is not something that we talk enough about. Um, so it's not until adulthood that we actually start thinking about these things, you know, having the right conversations about it. So anyway, the research basically said that 67% of the population of, of the um, 17.5K participants have had at least one of these AC, um, ACEs. No way. Which is mental. It's pretty much the majority. Um, if we round it up, that's 70%. Yeah, two thirds. Yeah. And um, 12 to 16% had four or more of these um, ACEs. Um, and, and they also showed in the research that ACEs have a direct link to um, physical health outcomes. So the higher the score, the higher, the more ACEs you have, the more likely you're going to have health risks. So, for example, if you have four or more ACEs, you're four and a half times more likely to have depression or you're 12 times more likely to be suicidal. No way. So sorry, that was hard hitting back to uh, end my little ACEs talk. <laughs> no, that's amazing. Thank you so much for that stat. I love it when someone brings a stat. That's <laughs> unbelievable. So hang on. So you said 67% of those yeah. that were um, surveyed had had one of those experiences. Yeah, at least one. 12 to 16% of them had had four or more. And you also said that four or more would indicate... Uh, four times, four and depression. a half times more likely. Yeah, and suicidal. Fuck. Oh, my word. Yeah. Right, that's blowing us away. Um, I think that's about as deep as you get, but can I ask you the next question, which is... Absolutely. <laughs> you know what it is, don't you? No, I really don't. Um, Are you ready to get balls deep? Oh, I'm always ready to get ball steep with Jake. Yes, that's <laughs> what I like to hear. It's funny we were gonna, you and I were gonna make this the Valentine's special. We sort of missed that, but um, we did. It's not yeah. a very romantic question, anyway, is it? That's okay. Um, right. Firstly, what's your current state of mind? Oh, I mean, I always get very philosophical with these questions. Please so. Do my so in terms of society my current state of mind is I'm very optimistic about how the world is progressing at the moment and it's just the beginning but mentally I am recognizing my um, my flaws I'm recognizing that I have had traumas that I never knew I had um, until now and I am working on it so I'm feeling I'm progressing I'm not saying I'm great and it's okay that you're not great um and I think that it's taken me a while to accept that it's okay that I have been having these you know I've been self-hating her for a very long time it's okay like you need to learn that it's okay that you're going through these mental health issues it's okay you know you just always need to com comfort yourself, and that is the best that you can do to you to your mental health. Such a good answer. I love that. Um, <laughs> right. So, 
Do you have any advice that you'd give to your younger self? God. Um, I guess for me, it's more about, so what if I'm not white? I'm still a human. We're still surviving, you know? Um, And I just, yeah, I guess my advice is just not give a fuck. Sorry, but just don't. So just self-acceptance. Yeah, self-acceptance. Nice. Absolutely. I just want to say this one thing about how, you know, this phrase, it's okay. Just it's, but that's okay. That's such a simple yet powerful statement that I'm starting to learn to accept. So this is one of my philosophers that I actually came across recently called Seneca. He's an ancient Roman philosopher. Um, and he had, he basically suffered a form, like a series of illnesses. And he just basically said, it was a really powerful phrase that I, you know, it really stuck to me. Um, it was, it was, um, sometimes just living, it's a form of bravery. And I feel like, you know, listeners out here, you should just take that away. Just living is a form of bravery. Remember that. We are surviving. Oh, We're going through yes. this pandemic. Oh, yes. It's <laughs> it's okay. It's okay what we're going through at the moment. We're living in a pandemic. <laughs> we are so brave right now. We are surviving. <laughs> oh, I love that. Smong, you've knocked it out of the park. That's only question two out of five. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, this, this always brings a tone down, this question. So I apologize okay. in advance. Um, but what do you consider to be the lowest depth of misery? Oh my god, I don't even know how to interpret this question. Lowest depth of misery. Tell me about it. It can be um a, a mode of being, or it can be um you know how you see other people living, or a feeling inside yourself. You know, someone might say loneliness or isolation, which is stuff we've talked about. Or they might say, I, I think it's miserable when people watch Love Island. I don't know. I mean, that I definitely want. agree. Um, I don't really feel like... I don't know. I'm interpreting this as a negative outlook. I don't know. I don't want to have this mentality where, you know, the lowest point in life, you know, I like I said, it's okay to be at the lowest point in your life. That's If that's your lowest point, that's okay. Okay. Let's flip it on its head then. Yeah. Um. What What are you striving towards? What's What state of being do you strive towards? Or what's the What are the heights of joy and happiness for you? Describe that. For me, is uh, knowing that at the end of the, at the end of the day, you've got yourself. You don't need anyone else. You know. You don't need to rely on anyone else. You just need to rely on yourself because people come and go in your life, you know, whether even family, they come and go in your life, your friends, your boyfriends, your girlfriends, whatever, but you will be there for yourself for the rest of your life. So you need to have that self-confidence, self-love, everything, cherish yourself, you know, appreciate yourself because that is the most important thing and the best thing they'll ever do to your mental health. So independence, would you say? Um, or in in individualism or self self support self love. Self love, okay. 
self-confidence and love, not independence, because you can equally love someone and appreciate someone, but just know that no one else is going to be there for you apart from yourself, no matter what. Smile, okay. Um, what's the last thing that made you smile? Is it cheeky if I said Jake? No, not at all. You're allowed to say that. <laughs> uh, before me, last thing before this chat. Last thing that made me smile. Okay. Ooh, last thing that made me smile is. It's tough, isn't it? It's really tough. Why are you asking all sorts of tough questions, man? <laughs> um, I'm all about emotion, like very emotional chats and stuff. And, you know, I mean, Jake, yes, you are one of the correct answers. And also living with my housemate, who's also very much into into her feels, you know, we constantly check in on, on our own emotion, you know, with our how we're feeling today. That really does make me smile. That really does. That's great. That's really lovely. So last two, well, last question. I've got two interchangeable questions. Sometimes I say one, sometimes I say the other. So sometimes I ask people if they have a motto, right? Um, and other times I ask people where they find meaning. I would like to volunteer my answer for the motto. It's not my motto, but I'm actually wearing a T-shirt, which has got quite a cool motto on it. So let me read that to you. And then you're free to either, well, you could answer both. You tell me a motto and where you find meaning. Um Adventure begins at the end of your comfort zone. What do you think about that? Oh, I like that. I really do. End of your comfort zone. I mean, that sounds very hashtag travel, but... Yeah. <laughs> Gap your vibes. Very much so. But I, I stand. I really stand. <laughs> um, go on. Have you got a motto? I really don't. I thought I flexed my... um my my motto earlier on don't um, don't answer it then go for um yeah tell me where you find meaning where do you find meaning where do i find meaning yeah would it would have been adequate adequate answer if i said talking to people from all walks of your life yes absolutely it would be is that true it really is so before i got to bristol and you know embarked on my postgraduate journey i was so fixated on, you know, this gender binary. And it wasn't until I did Gender Naya where I met people from LGBTQI community. I started understanding how, like by understanding their life experiences, my life has been so heteronormative and I had no idea all the other marginalized communities in this society. Like I had, I was so clueless. I really was. And then it got me started to think about loads of things. So, yeah, I, I think talking to people from all sorts of, you know, walks of life really does help you find the true meaning, the essence. Like, you're going to choose your own, you know, perspective for looking at things by looking at so many different of perspectives. Yeah, I don't know if that makes sense, but, yeah. I think you've tied it back to what we said earlier about changing your syllabus, changing your textbooks, being able to look at different perspectives and, and understand how different people feel or react to certain events. That's a great place to find meaning, talking to other people. Um, Smong, Desiree, Desiree Fong, thank you so much for doing this. It's been a joy to talk to you. 
Thank you, Jake. It's been lovely talking to you too. Honestly, I've had so much fun. I'm going to press stop now. Don't yeah. you dare go, go anywhere. I'm right? not leaving. <laughs> right, one second. There we go. Now that is the official end to the first season of the Balls Deep podcast. Like I said at the start, there are a couple of cheeky little bonus episodes that I've got up my sleeve. So keep your eyes peeled for those. But I just want to say a massive thank you again for all the support, all the feedback, all the reviews, all the shares. It's been wicked. I've really enjoyed doing this and I think I'd like to keep it going. I need to take a little bit of time to just reflect, rest, and think about who I'd like to talk to next and how I'd like to change the pod. Yeah, watch this space. If you've got any thoughts, any feedback, as always, don't hesitate to drop us a message. Um, Yeah, I love hearing from you, it's so good. Keep sharing it, keep spreading the love. Listen to the old episodes. I think I'm going to go back to listen to Finn, actually, episode one, and maybe go running, do a little marathon, definitely not a marathon, but I might get some, I might do a 5k, that's about it. Yeah, there's some good stuff, I'm really pleased with what we've produced on this. I hope you have too, I think people have enjoyed it. Right, I'm waffling now. I'll see you later. Big thanks, loads of love, speak to you soon.